Brentwood Zai Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Well, hello again, Woodside White Lake. It is a joy to sing to our worthy king and ruler this morning. Be reminded of a truth that anchors our heart. All through this series, we've been kind of addressing those moments because I think globally we've had one of those what now moments, right? Where something so dramatic happens, and it can happen personally in our lives, that career that suddenly ripped out from underneath you or the relationship that's suddenly taken away. It can happen globally like a world that's rocked to a, a stop and they're there's frustration and there's hurt and there's questions. And what everyone shares in common in those moments is the reality that things that used to be taken for granted or counted on, things that we used to really define how we saw ourselves, is suddenly gone, suddenly changed. And when that happens, we ask ourselves in our souls, what now? Why does it matter? This morning, as we continue in our series, we're going to see Jesus predict to the people he's living life with some world-changing events that are going to come their way, to their time, to their culture. And anticipating the way this is going to unsettle them, this is the way that this kind of prediction would make them afraid for who they are. Jesus provided some reason to steady their hopes in the scary reality on its way. And the hope he shares is the same hope that can wholly transform you and I as we face identity and cultural crises. So in Matthew 24 through 25, I'd invite you to turn there. We're looking at this moment where Jesus and his disciples, they've been in the temple. They had some conversations there. Jesus taught some things and really kind of took it to the religious leadership who were living a very shallow, very false kind of truth in front of others in order to be defining themselves as better than others. And Jesus attacks them and calls them what they are, false teachers and hypocrites. And that goes over swimmingly with them. And... He and his disciples are on their way out of the city, leaving directly from the temple through the gate of the wall, out into a valley and up to the Mount of Olives next door to Jerusalem. As they're leaving, we get this moment where the disciples are looking at the construction, the ongoing renovations that are happening in the temple led by Herod, and they're pointing out the stones, they're pointing out the architecture, they're pointing out the grandeur of a building that defines them as a people. I mean, this is like the Eiffel Tower meets Mecca meets the, the Capitol building, right? Like this temple structure, this temple complex that defines who a people view themselves as. It's grand it's the dwelling place of the glory of God throughout history. 
It's who they are. They're pointing out the wonders of this temple. And Jesus says, yeah, that's going to be destroyed. That's a culture-changing moment to a people who look to that place as the symbol of why they matter. So his disciples, astounded by that prediction, want to know more. And they ask Jesus, when will these things be? Jesus lays out an answer that is filled to the brim with references to Old Testament prophecies and hints to the future. He gives parables and illustrations on how they should act and think in light of the things that are to come. And over the past few weekends, you've heard us teach. Pastor Rob has shared that, yes, troubles were going to come, but God, God could be trusted. And that the troubles of the world would not hinder the progress of the kingdom of God. So God's mission continues. Jesus will come back unmistakably. Something we've also done through this series in particular and really in every series that we teach here, is to practice careful scholarship as we interpret the Bible, knowing for certain that God's word, the Bible, is true. But as we look at this, we're humble to realize that good and faithful interpretations of this inspired scripture in some places from some people may differ in understanding the full implications of a given text. Specifically, in areas of prophecy, Apocalyptic literature looking to the future, it's possible to graciously disagree. That's something that doesn't happen often. Graciously disagree about some nuances in meaning. And this message from Jesus is widely agreed upon that we wait while we await the triumphant return of Jesus, these signs, these events that Jesus references have been at least partially fulfilled already. That's the good news. We can know for certain that everything is right for Jesus to come back at any moment. We excitedly await for his return. However, it's also fair to allow that with other nuances in mind, some more events may yet come that are going to further fulfill the words Jesus talks about. I found as we look at a passage like this, it's helpful to me, a rule I submit to, as we understand the Bible's passages specifically about the future, that when smart people disagree on particulars, wise people focus on purpose. When scholars and theologically trusted authorities disagree on every single nuance of what a given prediction might look like as it's fulfilled, It's okay to graciously say, that may be, or we might look at it differently. But in the end, we can all agree we're wise to listen to the purpose of that prophecy and submit obediently to living in light of whatever it may fully entail. There's a beauty and worth in discerning with greater clarity the undeniable truths of God's word, even down to the particulars of exactly how God is going to work. But what's especially necessary is that we keep our focus on the purpose of a prophetic passage. And when we humbly and graciously work together on non-gospel issues where we disagree, we're freed to be obedient to what is clear and what is necessary in the purpose of Jesus. So, Matthew 24, 29 causes problems for us. Jesus shares some specifics in the timeline leading up to significant events 
And we want to power through today some just clip notes, some basic points that Jesus communicates. And these points lead us, I believe, to the real purpose of what Jesus is sharing, the thing that we really ought to orient our lives around. So would you read with me in your copy of the text, Matthew 24, 29, as I read it aloud. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, he's referencing what we just talked about last week. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon won't give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus starts by referencing the affliction that was to occur with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. We discussed this last week. And immediately after that terrible event happens, the world seems to fall apart. The sun's darkened, the moon stops shining, stars are falling from the sky. Jesus brings in cataclysmic language to describe the events that are happening here. If this passage finds further Fulfillment in the future, which it is fair to look for, certainly it's within God's ability, in fact, to actually cause these things to literally happen. That's possible. No one doubts that. Who knows God? But for their initial fulfillment, which we also see historically, Jesus uses this language for rhetorical impact on our imagination. This is a language that was familiar to his Jewish audience. He's quoting and echoing the Old Testament scripture, specifically the book of Isaiah, where the prophet uses almost identical language to describe the Lord's judgment against the Babylonian Empire as they were defeated and overthrown and replaced by another empire. Isaiah says this, Look for the similarities, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations won't give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon won't shed its light. He goes on to say, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. In this passage, the prophecy here, the, the text here, the phrases there aren't intended, nor were they ever historically fulfilled as literal descriptions of a cosmic event where space stops happening the way we expect it to. It was an explanation of the immensity of the cultural moment that would take place when the Babylonian Empire was defeated, burnt to the ground, overthrown by a new leadership. That kind of seismic shift in who was running the place, the known world of the time, was so world-altering, it was as if the heavens disappeared and fell from their orbits. That's what the prophet Isaiah was saying. That's what happened when a new empire rolled through. Isaiah was right in this declaring prophetically the end of the Babylonians. So, these word pictures have precedent as metaphors of God's wrath and the Lord's catastrophic work. It's just like when you and I might say something was earth-shattering. We don't literally mean the earth was split in two. It, it's just like when we said that rocked my world or flipped it upside down. Although the polar magnets are, the pol magnetic polar poles are shifting. Right? You know, that, that happens. That, that's not what we say when we say our world was flipped upside down. We just mean everything we used to count on is different now. There's a, this is at least what Jesus is doing with the language he chooses to describe the affliction and judgment that's coming against Israel and against the temple 
when the Romans defeated it, overthrew the city of Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. The very people, and this is insane, the very people, Israel, and the very structure, the temple, that was meant to be a light to the world and a beacon of truth, was now going to be, Jesus says, a recipient of divine, apocalyptic, and earth-shattering judgment. And, and the, the note to make at this point, as we look at this text, is that Israel is judged. Through the destruction of the temple, Israel was judged. Jesus had warned the religious leaders in Jerusalem just that day and throughout his ministry that if they didn't repent, destruction would come. And so in this definitive, public, and powerful way, God was going to rock the world of the Jewish people by destroying the temple. And it's humbling to realize, and I think sobering for us as a church, today in 2021 in White Lake, Michigan, Waterford, Commerce, wherever you drove from, to note that the people of Israel, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when it came to understanding God and his prophecies and following and knowing and loving him, they had every advantage possible. God wanted them to be a light to the nation so that many could join them, but they had an inside track. They were the recipient of God's promises. They had received directly from God revelation and scripture. They had the law. They had the tabernacle tent and the temple building. God moved through them, rescued them, accomplished great victories for them disciplined them directly. God was so very involved in their life and history. And yet still, as vanished as though they were, Israel was infected with the same disease we all share. They were rebellious against God. Their hearts grew cold over time. Their lives were plagued by hypocrisy. We even see in Jesus' ministry in conversation with religious leaders, they seem to think that because they were the people of God, who God had made promises towards, they were safe. They could never really receive the wrath of God, the consequences of God, because they were God's people. They had a get-out-of-jail-free card. In church, we ought to learn from their lesson without repeating the mistake. If the best of advantages can be wasted, we as people who know God cannot walk away from that love. We're at risk of losing the wonder of grace too. We're at risk of ignoring the call towards active love and holy living. So let's humble ourselves before the Lord. Let's examine our hearts. Let's ask him to search us and know us and reveal any rebellion in our hearts. And let's continually submit to his leadership. Stand amazed in the holiness and righteousness of our God who does deliver justice against wickedness. That is a good attribute of God. We, as people who have received justice through his son, Jesus, dying in our place for our sins, 
ought to live empowered by the Spirit in a way that models the love we have from Him to Him. The holiness we have through Him for Him. Israel was judged through the destruction of their temple. And we must learn from their example. We keep reading, though. As Jesus continues his discourse, he takes that significance of the destruction of the temple, as world-changing as it already was, to the next level. This is what he says. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with heaven, with power and with great glory. Something significant was going to happen here as they faced the loss of their temple. And we find in this passage, just like in the last, there were echoes of Isaiah. In this next verse, there's echoes of the prophet Daniel. Because in Daniel, Daniel's vision in chapter 7 is this. Look for the similarities. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples of nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. So in this vision, Daniel also speaks of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, this glorious moment. We know that Son of Man is Jesus who comes and is presented to the Ancient of Days, a reference to God. And he receives all glory and honor and rulership. It's like a coronation ceremony happening here. A king receiving his crown, except this king is not a temporary official. And this land or rulership is not limited by time or geography. This king is in heaven for eternity. And Jesus' prophecy echoes that vision. Where Jesus is sharing that he will inaugurate his kingdom. Even as the temple and the Jews' understanding of the ruling of God on earth gets destroyed. So yes, Israel is judged. They lose that significance and that temple and that moment and that cultural identity in their minds. But Jesus isn't any less in charge. He's enthroned forever. Jesus is enthroned. That's the other fact we need to take away from this moment. The ancient prophecies find fulfillment not only when Jesus lived and died and rose, but also when the temple was destroyed, perhaps even more ultimately in time to come. Because God is communicating to the world that the nexus, the center of power and authority is no longer the nation state of Israel. It's no longer the temple that's the physical center of God's work. Instead, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him who is the son of man, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus. Jesus has taken the throne. When the temple was destroyed, it was another sign. The focus of God's plan on earth isn't a city in the Middle East. It's not a physical structure or building. The center of God's plan, the focus of his story is Jesus. God's presence is found in Jesus, not a temple. 
His forgiveness is found in Jesus, not a temple. His voice is heard through Jesus, not a teacher in a temple. We meet God through Jesus, not at a temple. We're forgiven by God through Jesus, not by sacrifices at a temple or living a certain way. We hear from God through the word of God, Jesus. We look to Jesus on the throne. Not anyone else, not any place else as our ultimate authority. And if you think about this, these first century Christians, these followers of Jesus, these disciples, had a history personally and culturally that this would have seemed totally different to. And they would have been tempted to go back to the old ways, the old covenant. There's a comfortability in that. There's a safety in that. There's a sense of I'm doing what I have to do in order to make myself right with God in that. A tent called a tabernacle. A building called a temple. This was what they understood their walk with God should look like. That was God's relationship to them. And God would always be faithful to his promises, to his people. But the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself in this moment are saying the temple will be gone. But the Messiah will still be enthroned. Hebrews 8, 1 through 2 says it this way. The point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. A minister in the holy places. The true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. Jesus is enthroned as our king. Our great priest. Ruling not out of a temple that we could build. But out of the heaven. He is the center. Our way of reconciliation. And the object of our loves. And so we have to ask ourselves. If that is what Jesus said is true. Is that what's true of myself? Is Jesus enthroned in our lives by bringing us to life, by us placing our faith in him through the truth of the gospel, but he is also the center of our love, the focus of our living, the thing we look to in order to find ourselves. What stands at the center of your universe? Is it money? Is it power? Is it popularity? Is it success? Is it a politician or politics? Is it your habits or your hobbies? What is it that is the king and ruler of your heart, your thoughts, your emotions, your hopes? When we recognize that Jesus is king, we submit to that in every area of our lives, we get to live in line with reality His victory is certain. His reign is eternal. So we bow to him. We give him our heart. We make him the center of our lives. In just these few verses, Jesus has predicted the destruction of the temple. That his eternal reign will exist. And then something significant happens. In the next verse, verse 31, he says this. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. We see that the Son of Man's mission here will go global. 
especially now that it's not limited in anyone's eyes to a physical location, it now gets to go global. The gospel is global. The Son of Man sends his messengers to all four corners of the earth. This can be a reference to the collection day of saints and a day yet to come. In that case, it's essential for us to notice, hey, those saints are collected from everywhere. That God's people have gone everywhere in the world and the gospel has changed the hearts in every culture and every ethnic group and every language. But this passage can also be a reference to our undisputed gospel preaching mission to take the good news across the globe right now. And so you see those two things are connected no matter how you interpret this moment. He likens the preaching the gospel in this sense to a blowing of a trumpet, which is a great instrument if you've had a middle schooler for getting your attention and they were in band class. There's a special crown in heaven for all band teachers. We know that to be true. This is what we're doing when we share the gospel. Hopefully we do it better than a middle schooler with an instrument. We preach what Jesus called the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. We announce to every nation that the kingdom of God is near, that the king has come, that he laid down his life for us, rebellious against him, but he rose in victory and he reigns in heaven over everything. This is our task, church. This is our joy. It's our calling from the king to bring the gospel to all four corners of the globe. And ever since the start of the church universal, this has been the mission, moving towards the unreached so that more and more of the world will be filled with the light of the gospel, sacrificing every advantage and every moment and any wealth and all opportunities so that others may have the only opportunity that matters. To recognize and be brought to life by a king who loves them. So what's our heart posture towards the nations? Are you burdened for areas of the world where the gospel witness has little to no inroads yet? How burdened are you? Does it change anything about your personal life goals? My personal life goals? Do we realize with gratitude we are of those people whom the gospel has already gone towards? We aren't the center of God's plan from which he will move. We're, the, we're at best second or third or 17th nation and people group, whatever your heritage may be. We have been shown such grace and mercy we get to reach out to the still billions of people on the planet who will be born and live and die and never even have a chance to hear the name of Jesus. And our king has sent us these, to these places. Our mission includes making known the love of God in Christ where it isn't yet known. What part will we play? Because the gospel is global, maybe a few humble suggestions, we pray, right? We pray at least. We pray for the areas of the world that haven't been reached by the gospel and the work of the gospel in every other nation. Here's maybe just a, a place to start. 
If you don't know it already, operationworld.org has a prayer guide. It exists really as a digital prayer guide for every nation with information about every people group on the planet. Pray through it. Check out woodsidebible.org slash global partners. See where we're already at work there. Pray with us. And because the gospel is global, we give. Those who are called to leave our home and nation must go to the unreached. And in order to do that, they must be sent, prayed off, supported and encouraged, invested in. One of the biggest challenges to those who already know they're called and are already willing to go is the opportunity to get there and stay there because they've been invested in by a church who believes in the mission we've been given. Woodside currently is at work here, but we want to grow organically and organizationally. We do support 38 missions families serving in 16 different countries. We've got six specific church planting partnerships that we've helped fund and prayed with over and over and over again. But we must give because the gospel is global. We also must go. I believe that God has called some of us to go, all of us to go here, some of us to go there. I pray that God would raise up his daughters and sons from White Lake with a gospel heart for gospel missions. I'm thrilled and grateful that we have as a church seen young business women and men leave our nation and start their careers in another country, specifically so they can be a part of God's work there in a place where the gospel is less known. We've seen families uproot themselves from our church and move to other nations in order to be a part of gospel work. Families who are trying to do that right now. We've seen our age 65 plus crowd decide that they're not going to invest their retirement years in some like maybe what you might call a well-deserved luxury. Instead, invest that luxury so that others can know the luxury of a relationship with their king. In an effort to raise up the next generation of missionaries, this past year, Woodside launched the Global 100. Our goal is to send 100 people from our church into global mission in the next 10 years. That's such a huge ask, a huge need. And it's not even the beginning of what it's requiring of us who have received the gospel. It doesn't even touch turning that around as a real act of worship, does it? I'm thrilled that currently we have 18 men and women who are focused on understanding that calling more and getting prepared to go. That's a great start. May we, eight years from now, find 80 less families in our campus because we're passionate about the gospel around the world. God's plan to reach our neighbors is me and it is you. No matter if the neighbors live around the corner or around the world. So what will be our role in this global mission? Count the cost. Because it is everything. Just keep in mind that our everything has already been provided. And so the cost is nothing. Be open. Could we be open to what God might be doing in us? Can we recognize that this life and this place and this community may not be what God has 
for us ultimately. Because while the gospel has a beachhead here and a culture admittedly that is far from him, it may still need to even get started elsewhere. Church, the disciples in this moment had to be worried about their loss of their cultural identity, their civic cornerstone. If their temple was destroyed, who, who were they anymore? Maybe like you and I, when they were faced with what Jesus is saying is an unprecedented next for them. They were tempted to lose heart, to bunker down, to bounce out of town, whatever it may be. For some reason, Jesus chose to say what he said next. I think that's the purpose that we walk out of here with today. He said, from a fig tree, learn its lesson in verse 32. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know he is near. At the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Same way that when the leaves start to bud, you know summer is right around the corner and can't come soon enough. Amen. Jesus saying all these things, all these signs, they're a sign that Jesus is about to begin that work. Their cultural cornerstone is going to get ripped away so it can be replaced very literally with a reigning king for all eternity. He assures his disciples that the temple would be destroyed in their generation, and it was 60 years later. Then, to give confidence in the face of such terror, he raises the bar that heaven and earth, the entire known universe, can pass away. Everything might change. And boy, do we know that. Everything might change. But my word will stand forever. Your temple will fall. But God Revealed and known in his word is still there. A king to reign forever. The purpose that Jesus has pointed to all along here. And all the ins and outs of his prophetic words. Is the one thing we need to know in this season. The one thing we need to know in every season. Just like his disciples we can rely on Jesus unchanging word. We can rely on the unchanging nature of who Jesus is. Revealed through his word to us, inspired through the Holy Scripture, revealed through the word, Jesus in flesh. Jesus says, bank on it. Rely on me. Everything else will fail you. Your family will fail you. Your career will fail you. Your friends may and will fail you. Your church family Man, we'll fail you. I know that you have failed you, haven't you? Maybe more than the rest combined. But God, revealed and known in his word, is true and enduring. And that can be what we build our lives on. We sometimes 
right now find ourselves in cultural or personal moments where they seem like everything is new. Everything has changed. Everything is uncertain. And it's tempting in those moments to write our own rules, to embrace uh, our own identity of our own choosing, to join up with people who share our fears, to circle the wagons, to have our way by any means necessary. But Jesus assures us that things will change. Yes. And circumstances will confuse us, certainly. But in all the areas that matter most, God's word is clear. We can hope in the gospel that has transformed us because of a God who is sure to never fail. We don't know every little detail of our changing lives and how they'll unfold. But we do know we can rely on the unchanging God known through his unchanging word. As it's declared in the classic hymn, we're going to affirm just a moment how firm a foundation is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to us than he's already said? Fear not, I am with you. I will sanctify to you your deepest distress. Church, what we believe about tomorrow changes and affects our today. We believe tomorrow that Jesus is enthroned with a gospel mission. So we look to him today. We listen to him today, obey him today. And let's have our confidence in our unchanging foundation. Because through any unknown todays, we have a certain tomorrow. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.